Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, this is our standard for life. We thank you, Father, as we turn to your word, as we lean on you, Father, that we find strength and wisdom. Lord, as we look today at just four verses that Christ spoke, but we ask, Lord, in a powerful way, Lord, that you would speak to us. Father, I've studied, but I pray that you put aside all the things that don't need to be said. Father, that you will remind us of what we need to hear. Father, give us hearts that are open to you. Father, to your spirit's leading. Again, thank you for your work. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it's March. If you didn't know it, with all the snow, usually March is when I start jogging, start running. I love to run. I don't like to run like some people I know, like Lisa and Meredith, who run through the winter. I'm kind of scared of uh, the snow and ice, or the ice more than the snow. I remember in high school that we had to run, if we're on football team, we had to be in, in track. And I remember running and hating it. Fast forward to college, I had a friend who was a long distance runner, and I used to think as I talked with him, I used to think, it must be real boring. Then I got into seminary, I was in Southern California at Talbot. My roommate, Roger, was a sports enthusiast. He loved to run. He loved every sport. And he pushed me out of our room onto the streets. He encouraged me to run. And when I want to quit, he'd say, don't give up. Keep going. He'd say, Ralph, you see that house by Blocker Two Way? Let's go to there. And we get to there, and he'd say, Ralph, let's go a little bit further. And he kept pushing me, kept pushing me. And Roger was so committed. He encouraged me. He pushed me forward in a good sense to keep running. After seminary, I came here to Chicago, worked with Innocent Impact. Within a year, I was married to my wife, Chris. So busy, I quit running. And then... Later, I tried to run, and my knees would hurt, excruciating pain. And I'd wait a while and try it again. But finally, I'm not sure exactly what happened. I guess I just kept after it. I got to where I can run. I don't run like a lot of you guys. Children don't run as fast, but I can run around 10 miles. But there are days when the alarm is set for around five-ish, my body wins out, and I stay in bed. But you know, most of the time, once I'm running, I wake up. I wake up wanting to run. And then I get out there sometimes, and it feels like all the, the, the muscles and all the joints that I have are pushing against me to stop. 
in the first mile or two, it seemed like I, I just, I want to quit. As I keep running, it gets better. And I love it. And I get home. I'm always exhausted, but I always feel so much better. There's something about running that's a stress release for me. I think I really, truly think more clearly when I jog. And I think probably I keep a few pounds off as I do that. We're just, as we're running physically, God has called us to run the race with Him. And there are times, if we're honest, we feel like giving up. We feel like quitting. The pain, the hurt that we feel gets to us. We want to give up and give in and to stop, to quit. But the Spirit of God keeps pushing us. When we run physically, there are rewards, better health, better thinking. Sometimes you may get a ribbon if you're in a contest, if you're in a race, maybe even some money. But the race that we are in with the Lord have eternal benefits. And today, as we look at this passage for the church at Smyrna, Jesus Christ encourages the church there to not give up in the face of persecution in the midst of suffering. He says, be faithful unto death, and I give you the crown of life. This is not a reference to eternal life. It has more to do with rewards for being faithful and sticking with it. Today, as we look at how this passage applies to good news, I know that Christ is saying to us, don't give up. Remain faithful. Even to the end. Even if it means death. And I reward you for it. Last week, as we began this series on the seven churches in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, he looked, Pastor Eric Carey looked at, at Ephesus. And the key statement there was love. Don't, don't just have right theology. Don't, don't have cold orthodoxy. Get that love back. Get that love back. Pastor Kerry so clearly stated the need for us to overcome required restoration of love. And today we see with the church at Smyrna, God calls on them to not give up in the midst of persecution. Well, the city of Smyrna is about 35 miles north, north, west of, of Ephesus. Beautiful city, they say. It was known as the crown of Asia, the flower of Asia. It was a wealthy city, a very important city. It was the key city in the area. And kind of controlled all the, the, the flow of, of uh, shipping. The city had experienced death, literally had died in the midst of war, and was brought back to life. And it's, that, it's likely because of this past that Christ refers to himself as 
is the one who died and came back to life again. Smyrna was a free city. It means that the Roman Empire gave it permission to have its own government. It was very, very loyal to the Roman Empire. We, we, we think often of the, the Jewish people as we study the New Testament. We, we see how they just bristled under the control of, of Rome. But that wasn't typical. Most cities or most areas willingly followed the Roman Empire. And, and, and we'll see why. There was a large population of Jews there in Smyrna, and they were very influential, very powerful. Smyrna exists today. It's called Ismar. So it has a population of around 4 million. 4 million. I think today there are two evangelical churches there. Revelation 2, 8 through 11. Just four verses, but it's so packed with powerful information for us. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich in the slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Be faithful to, the, to death, and I give you the crown of life. He who has ear, let him hear the Spirit, what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. When verse 1, or verse 8 rather, we see Christ revealed is the eternal creator and the Savior. We're reminded that it's Christ who is speaking. He's the one who's giving this advice. He's encouraging this congregation who's going through so much to trust him in the midst of all that they're going through. And the way Christ describes himself gives an indication of what the church needs. He used two different titles. First, he says, the first and the last. The passage is talk about Christ being the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Revelation 1, 8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Isaiah 44, 8 says, I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. The second title, He who was dead and now alive. And it really means He who came to be dead. He who came to be dead and came to life again. Clearly a reference to the cross, to resurrection. He's telling them, I'm in control. Not those all around you who are persecuting you, but I, Christ, am in control. You know, no matter what happens to us, Christ 
has gone through far more than we'll ever go through. He's able to understand what we are feeling, what we're going through. He has compassion and he cares for us, right where we are today. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, we read, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And it goes on and says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Christ understood what the believers in Smyrna were going through far, far more than, than one can ever understand. He understands what we're going through as a church and as individuals. He knows. Remember in chapter 1 it says that Christ, when John looked and he saw Christ in the midst of the seven candlesticks, he was walking in the midst of the churches. And Christ was saying to Smyrna, I face death like you face it. And I've come back to life. And all who are believers in Christ Jesus, who may face death, that's not the end because of me. In verse 9, Christ says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not for a synagogue of Satan. We see here Christ's knowledge of the church there in Smyrna. He says, I know what you're going through. I know about your tribulation. I know about your poverty. I know about the slander that you're receiving. I know. It reminds me of Psalm 139, a, a favorite passage of mine. Those first three verses says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down, and you're acquainted with all my ways. You see, Christ knows us. He knows when we go to bed at night and when we get up. He knows what we go through at work. Or he knows what we go through at school or his mom's. Those bad days when... It seems that nothing goes right. He knows. The first Christ knew of their tribulation. And that word there is it's a pressure, a little, a little crushing beneath the weight. It conveys that intense, constant pressure that often leads to death. The congregation was under tremendous pressure. And Christ knew what they were going through. I mentioned earlier that the city of Smyrna was deeply loyal to, to Rome. It claimed to be the first to, to have Caesar worship. To understand, though, the, the danger that the Christians risked and faced, we need to understand how Caesar worship started. Initially, it started just out of appreciation. There are these areas, these little provinces where there was no control of of, uh, of of evil. But when Rome took over, there was peace. 
And so they loved them. Life had been dangerous, and now it was good. So it started off as spontaneous worship, but then eventually it became compulsory. And once a year, every man, woman, had to go get a pinch of incense, go before the altar of the Godhead of Caesar, and afterwards was given a certificate that he had completed his duty. If one refused, he was branded an outlaw, which could lead to persecution. And literally, one took his own life into his hands when he entered into a, a Christian church. The second thing that Christ knew about the church of Smyrna was their poverty. He says, even though you're rich spiritually. This government persecution led to economic persecution, resulting in the poverty. And the different words for poverty, and he could have used, John could have used here, someone who has all their needs met, but nothing extra. But the word for poverty here is absolute, destitute, nothing. Nothing. At that time, the pagan guilds, the unions, controlled all the, the, the things, and, and it was set up around idol worship. Christians were excluded from doing any work even outside of that. We need to remember, though, when we're poor, that Christ was rich in heaven, that he came for our sakes to be poor. Not only did Christ know of their tribulations and their poverty, he also knew of the slander that they faced by the Jews. Verse 9 says, And the slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. This slander is a third type of persecution, religious persecution. It's speaking against Christ knew. He knew the Jews were the source of the suffering and poverty of the Christians. We look back to the Gospels. We can remember the antagonism between the Christians and the Jews. Acts 13, 45, uh, it talks about that when, the, when the Jews saw the large crowds that Paul was drawing, it says that they were jealous and so they slandered them. And it says that they stirred up the influential religious women and leaders of the city. And they incited a mob against Paul. The Jews were the only group within Rome that were exempt from Caesar worship. And initially, Christians were under that because they were seen as a form of Judaism. But because of the antagonism between the Jews and the Christians, the Jews began to report the Christians who would not fall down before or worship the, the Caesar. Christ says, though, that these Jews were spiritually of Satan and under his control and power. 
If you remember when he was living on earth, they told him that they were their father was Satan. Well, the Lord knows our needs. He knows your needs today. He knew the needs of the church at Smyrna. He assured the church at Smyrna that he knows and that he cares about their suffering. He then commends them for their spiritual wealth. In the midst of the suffering, in the midst of their poverty, the church at Smyrna was poor economically, yet rich spiritually. Matthew 5, 11 and 12 says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And so they persecuted the prophets, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Then after acknowledging what Christ knew about the church, he moves on and he gives them counsel. He says, I know, I know, I know what you're going through. I know about your poverty and the tribulation and the slander. And he gives them counsel in a warning, verse 10. He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. And do not fear literally means fear nothing, big or small. First Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all your anxiety on him, for he cares for you. Now Isaiah 41, 10 says, Fear not, for I'm with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. To go through life with his struggles. Again, Christ knows your needs. He's our strength. He will carry us through whatever we go through. Well, after encouraging them not to fear, he warns them about the future and testing. says, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. For ten days you will have tribulation. Different commentators and theologians have different ideas about these ten days. Some say it's a literal ten days, and in this ten days you weren't just put in, in prison, you were tortured. You're tortured so they were able to find out what you knew, what you could give up as far as information. Others would say this symbolic. They go back to Daniel. If you remember when Daniel and his friends went before the officials there and said, Give us ten days. Test us and see if our food is not good. But whichever way it is, There's that testing. And the reality that Satan is behind trials and tribulations is so very clear here. Some of these people would face prison. Others just severe testing in daily life. Some death. 
Isn't it easy for us when we face conflict or we face tough times? We see people, right? We see people and we think they're the source. But too often, as we go through times and we see people, we don't see Satan working behind the scene. Of course, God wants us to respond in love. We don't see Satan using them as tools. We need to remember that Satan is a defeated foe. We have to encourage them, reminding them what he's been going through. He, he then encourages them, rather, to be faithful and promises them a reward. He says, be faithful unto death. And I give you the crown of life. This suffering from Satan doesn't prove that Satan has more power than God. Again, Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He will reign forever and ever. And this particular suffering that comes to the church at Smyrna comes because God allowed it. He determined to use it to test people there. And while God's tests are never pleasant, when we go through them, they have a, a good goal for us. The suffering of the faithful at Smyrna resulted in the crown of life. There's only one other place where the word for crown of life is used. It's in James 1.12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life that God promised to those who love him. The crown of life is a special reward for those who endure. Second Corinthians four sixteen through eighteen says, So we don't lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. When we're going through struggles and trials and hurt, we focus on the hurt, right? But God wants us to focus on what the end result is. He wants us to trust Him no matter what we're going through. We face suffering for different reasons. We don't face persecution like the church at Smyrna did. Because I think of suffering, I want us to think about some of the different reasons that we may suffer. First is Satan, as we've already said. Satan hates the church. Think of Job and how God allowed Satan to do different things to him, but God was in control. We need to remember this with Job that Satan is limited. But then we know that God can use suffering in our lives. And, and first that comes to my mind is Hebrews, where it says that, that Christ disciplines those whom he loves. Then there's that preventative. If you remember Paul, after he saw these beautiful visions, 
he was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan that might keep them from becoming proud. So it sometimes it's to prevent us from sinning. It's instructive. Hebrews 5.8 says that Jesus learned obedience from the things he suffered. Christ learned obedience. Christ learned, rather, from obedience, from suffering. Romans 5.3-5 says, We rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. We want those things, right? We want hope. We want to endure. But it's those tough times when we go through life that God works. He uses the suffering in our lives to produce that endurance. Endurance gives us hope as we look to God. The fourth way that God uses suffering in our lives is purifying. In 1 Peter, shows that trials show our true faith. shows this genuine. It is in being tested like fire tests and purifies gold that your faith is more precious than gold. For the Lord knows our circumstances, just as he knew the circumstances of the church at Smyrna. We need to trust him is he, will give us, is he who will give us strength and courage Reverend Mikhail the Russian Orthodox priest back during the Bolshevik revolution and he was told by a gang says if you renounce your faith and trample the cross you'll go free if not we'll kill you Reverend Mikhail has seen 80,000 fellow Russian Orthodox leaders and late leaders murdered by the, by the communists. And amidst all the, the pain and the suffering, he decided that God didn't exist. Because God, if he existed, couldn't allow such misery. He says, I don't believe. He thought, in his mind, if he faced the gang, I don't believe. What does the cross mean to me? Let me save my own life. But when he opened his mouth, as he faced the gang, his words were very different. He says, I only believe in one God. I will not trample on the cross. The gang put a sack over his shoulders as a royal garment and used his fur hat for a crown, a Jesus crown of thorns. And one of them, a former member of his church, knelt before him saying, Hail, King of Jews! They took turns beating him and mocking him. He's God. And silently the reverend prayed, If you exist, please save my life. And as he was beaten, he cried out again, I believe in one God. This show of faith made such an impression on the drunken gang that they released him. 
when he arrived at home, he fell down on the floor, weeping and repeating, I believe, I believe. If we face hard times, God will give us the words, He will give us the strength to trust Him. We must trust Him in the midst of the suffering. As we suffer here on earth, we need to ask, is God disciplining me? Is God trying to keep me from some sin? Is He trying to teach me something? Is He purifying my witness? Well, Christ challenges and assures the church there at Smyrna in verse 11. He says, who ha- He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers and will not be hurt by second death. The commitment that Christ makes to the church, to those Christians there, uh, the one who hears, the one who overcomes, is not that they will not be hurt, but that they wouldn't be hurt by the second death. The Lord, who died and came to life again, is powerful enough to keep his faithful people even as they pass through the gates of martyrdom. The first death, of course, is physical death. The second death is eternal separation from God. Matthew 10, 28 reads, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I think there's a key point in this second letter to the church at Smyrna. It's at the end of verse 10. Be faithful to the end. Be faithful to the end, even to the point of death. These persecuted believers were not promised an escape from tribulation. They were promised instead something far greater, the grace to endure. The grace to endure without fear and the pledge that one day they'll be given the crown of life. God is completely in control of our circumstances. He knows what's happening in our lives. There are times that he intervenes, but there are times that he chooses not to intervene in our lives, because he has a purpose in the tribulation and in the trials that we face. And when he chooses not to intervene, it's because he has purpose for this tribulation, poverty, slander, when it comes to Christians. He uses it to fine-tune our character. He uses trials to strengthen us and to burn away the dross, so to speak, is in gold. Trials are for our profit. I think that too often, for myself, when I'm hurting, when I'm facing hard times, my first thoughts are to cry out, God, give me relief. Give me immediate relief. You and I probably are not in danger today of losing our life because of our loyalty to the Lord. It may happen in the future as we look around as we see things. Right now, though, you may be struggling 
You may feel tremendous stress and pressure. You may be trying to keep your business going. Or maybe you're suffering from verbal jabs from your boss or from someone in your family. Maybe you're under pressure from creditors. Regardless of the source of your hurt and your suffering or the intensity of your trials, remember that Christ is worth it all. Billy Graham points out that suffering has a mysterious, unknown component. Some suffer more than others. The church at Smyrna would face greater suffering. Yet another persecuted church, Philadelphia, will say, will be delivered. The apostle James was executed, but Peter was released. Corey Tim Boone survived the Nazi camp. Her sister was killed. We can't explain why suffering comes to some and not so much to others. All we know that is that Christ calls us to overcome in the strength that only He can provide. So today, as we think of the church at Smyrna, remember that Christ knew the church. He knew the tribulations, the poverty, the slander that was going on against him. He knows the affairs of Good News Bible Church. He knows what's going on in your life, your struggles. He longs for us to trust him, to not give up, to not quit, to keep running the race, to keep being that light that shines in the midst of suffering and persecution. Tuesday or Wednesday this week, I want to put on the website one more thing. I want us to begin praying for areas that are persecuted. Open Doors, a Christian organization, found that Christian martyrs' deaths around the globe have doubled in 2013. They documented over 2,100 killings in 2013 compared to 1,200 in 2012. In Syria alone, there were 1,200 deaths last year. In addition to losing their lives, Christians around the world suffered discrimination, imprisonment, harassment, sexual assaults, expulsion from the country just because of their faith. China, Asia, another Christian organization reported a 50% increase in persecution in China. And for the first time in 20 years, not one country is better off as far as persecution. Just read yesterday, the dictator in North Korea sentenced, I believe it was 33 believers to death. In that country, between 50 and 70,000 Christians are imprisoned 
for their faith. It's easy, isn't it, for us to forget about those people. The prayer councils will come forward. The band comes up. I'd like for us, this time we need prayer, to pray. But more and more, I think as we've gone through the series and Radical, as we look at these seven churches in Revelation, God is calling us not to a comfort life, not to a life of, of pleasantry, but He's calling us to be willing to step up and to step out. Let's pray.